Good morning, beloved. It's good to be back. I've been here for the past three Sundays. And much to my surprise, I find out that you've been having services anyway without me. So, No, no, I get it. I get it. I see how it works here. Okay. I'm actually very glad to be back. Just, It's amazing when you're in the comfort of your own family in Christ, just to stand there and sing with everybody, how everything just starts to return to normal. Hopefully my, uh, my jet lag will return to normal because right now we're having service at like 11 o'clock at night in my body. So weird time, but if that's when you want to meet, that's okay with me. So I had a good trip to India, two weeks in India, one week in China. While I was in India, I had a three-day weekend, so I did the obligatory Taj Mahal trip, which I've never been to before. Carl, I think you've, you've been there. It's uh, one of the new seven wonders of the world. It's an amazing work of architecture. Uh, the craftsmanship on that uh, facility is, is mind-boggling. 22 years, 20,000 people, 17,000 trips to Home Depot. And um, <laughs> it's all white marble with, with inlay, inlaid precious stones. Uh, the, the detail, just to make one flower, 120 pieces of inlaid stone. Uh, fantastic. The, uh, the tops of the four towers surrounding it had a gold cap, but when the British were there occupying, they took all that gold, but they couldn't remove the fine stones because they were glued in with a glue that was made with 30 different ingredients that by the time it dried, it became a part of the marble. So you can't really remove it. There's no paint on anything. So... As you probably know, the Taj Mahal actually is a mausoleum built by the fifth Mughal king uh, for his favorite wife. It's interesting. (laughs) His favorite wife. I don't know what the other wives got, but but she got this. She died at the age of 39. He was deeply in love with her. So they, the Indians, they see it as a monument to love is how they they look at that place. Um, He started to build his own mausoleum across the river and it was all going to be in black onyx. Hers would be white, his would be black. But his youngest son, or they kept referring to him as the bad son, he was a very ambitious guy, killed off his older brother, then imprisoned his father, and he took over. So the king's mausoleum was never finished, just the foundation was laid. And so this youngest son, a very ambitious guy, so apparently the king was a very good husband, but maybe not such a great father, not able to guide his very ambitious son in the way that he should go. There's nothing wrong with ambition. Uh, The Bible even talks about that. It's when it becomes overly ambitious. It's when there's a problem. We're encouraged to take action, to let your love not just be words and talk, but true love, which shows itself in action in 1 John. Of course, in many places, the Bible also discourages action without first thinking through what you're going to say or do. For example, James 1 tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. So today we're going to take a look at, continuing in the Gospel of Mark, a man who was impressed with action and power and ambition. Let us pray first. Heavenly Father, we come to you eager, earnest, in fear and trembling before you, that we would ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word. I pray, Father, for the speaker himself, that you would overlook his sins, which are many, and still deliver your message for these people here today. 
We love you. We want to know you better. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Mark 4, 21 through 34, we're going to read about some parables. In the 21st verse, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get. And still more will be given you. For those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. He also said the kingdom of God is as, as, is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground, and he would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. He also said... With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. So the reason I was in India and in China was because uh, I was teaching a course I developed for supply chain professionals on how to negotiate. Specifically, this course focuses on four types or styles of communication or negotiation. There's the warm-hearted relational helper who really doesn't like to negotiate and just concedes so they can get this over with. The assertive, confident, ambitious, doer, action-oriented negotiator who wants to get in there and get this thing done and want to win. And then there's the flexible, sort of content-adaptable team player who's always adapting to the situation. They're very, they can be very hard to read. And of course, there's the analytical thinker who only responds to facts and logic and detail. There are four Gospels, and in each way, each one of these represents one of these four communication styles of communicators. I personally think that's so God can ensure that whatever your personality type is, there's a Gospel for you. In fact, I often like to ask people, although all Gospels are equally important, do you have one that's a little bit more favorite than the others? Anybody have one like that? You kind of relate to that one. I'm, I'm a John guy, you know. I'll read the other three, but John's my man. <laughs> because I'm kind of like that, right? So, Matthew, he's that contextual team player type. These are the people always looking at the situation to determine what the appropriate thing to do is, which is like my wife, Beth. She won't respond until she knows what the situation is, which makes her such a good nurse. Each room she goes into, she acts differently to the needs of that situation, trying to be appropriate. Matthew saw Jesus as the most appropriate fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
Matthew provides far more prophetic references than the other gospel writers combined. Luke is the analytical thinking type. He starts his gospel pointing out the lack of detail in the other gospels. (laughs) Then he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. (laughs) Logical. Most excellent Theophilus who he's writing to, so that you may know the exact detailed guy, the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Luke's version provides the most detail in the most logical or chronological order. John is that warm-hearted relational type, often referred to as John the Beloved. He doesn't really focus on details. In fact, he only includes seven miracles. He wasn't as pressed with the miracles as with the loving attitude of Jesus. John uses the word love close to 40 times throughout his gospel. Matthew and Luke each use the term love 14 times. We've been studying the book of Mark, the ambitious type. Mark uses the term love seven times. So we each see what we want to see. Mark saw Jesus as a man of action, perhaps like himself. Throughout his story, he uses the word immediately quite often. It's like Jesus was always on the move when you read Mark. Immediately this, immediately this. The ambitious type also likes to be in charge or likes for someone to be in charge, to be at the helm, so to speak. And so Mark refers to the, the term authority at least ten times, as well as pointing out that Jesus would command unclean spirits or he would command the wind or command the waves. It's also the shortest gospel. So he was first. So he won that. Who wrote the gospel first? That was Mark, a competitive type. Mark is considered the earliest the most, and therefore the, probably the most reliable gospel. That's what most experts say. Um, specifically, Matthew and Luke use most of Mark's stories, but added more details. And they think most likely Mark got his stories from Peter. So the first half of Mark appears to be have no particular sequence, but does focus on the mighty works of Jesus, not so much the content of his teachings. More than half of Mark's gospel is devoted to specific, remarkable deeds. We've already looked at, or I assume you looked at because I wasn't here, but um, driving out unclean spirits, healing many, driving out demons, curing leprosy, healing a paralytic, a shriveled hand, just a few, as Mark says, just a few of the miraculous things that he sees Jesus do. In terms of parables, which we're going to study today in this passage, the whole book of Mark only records about seven, or maybe nine, depending on how you define a parable. One of those parables he shares is unique in this particular section we're going to look at. So when we ask how many parables that each gospel record, the answer depends on how you define a parable. In some cases, what one person calls a parable, another person calls is just a metaphor or analogy or an allegory. The important point is, no matter how we categorize these sayings, Jesus was teaching us important truths. He was revealing things that had been hidden throughout the whole Testament and things that were not easily understood. And as is always when you're the speaker... One of the advantages or disadvantages, however you want to look at it, is you bump into stuff that you'd not thought about before. (laughs) You know, wow, I never saw that before. And just to be open, I'm not really given a whole lot of in-depth study to parables. They just seem like nice little stories. (laughs) But then I stumbled upon John because I was looking at how many parables each gospel uh, recorded. And in John, 
which only, he only carries maybe one parable about the, the shepherd and the gate and the, the sheep and so on. But in John eight twenty eight, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And then in John fourteen ten, do you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words, the parables, that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So we're looking at these parables today taught by Jesus. And where did Jesus get these parables? Where did he get them? Get them from his Father. He didn't make these things up. He's not like, hmm... He got them directly from the Father, and he kept using them to teach important truths. To the general masses who were pursuing him and even sometimes sort of physically overwhelming him, they were looking for healings. He taught in parables, but he didn't explain. They wanted to see the miraculous, and Jesus wanted them to hear deep truths which cannot be seen, but rather grow from within. So why then does he explain the parables to his disciples, but not to the masses? Well, I think it might have something to do with Proverbs, which the men have been studying. Proverbs 2 and 8 and 16, among other places, we read that wisdom is like, wisdom is like what, man? Gold? Silver? Rubies? Yeah. And so what does it take to get gold and silver and find jewels. Well, we can go to the jewelry store. <laughs> However, the real process of obtaining gold and silver and precious stones is very hard work. It's very risky, tiring, requires research, requires digging, watching, pursuing clues, and it can be exhausting. It takes commitment, but once found, it's all worth it. I think the disciples fall into that category. They committed, didn't they? They followed. They gave up everything to follow him. And even then, notice they still struggled with understanding some of these truths. Sometimes Jesus would get a little frustrated with them, but he was very patient to teach them something that was hard to learn. See, the Jews were waiting to see the kingdom of God, and they still are waiting to see the kingdom of God. Jesus who was teaching the kingdom of God will not initially show up to be seen but rather his kingdom would be planted within the hearts of men and women through the process of hearing and receiving the truth and then grow from there. What does it say in Romans ten seventeen? So then faith comes by and hearing by the word of God, you see. So in this section, we have three parables back to back. The lampstand, growing seed, and the mustard seed which is very typical of this communication style. I don't know if any of you work for somebody who just wants bullet points. <laughs> just get in there, give me a couple of bullet Don't give me background information. Just get in and get out. Well, we see Mark's style. It's okay, here's three parables. Bam, 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 bam. And he lays them right out for us. The first one is the parable of the lampstand. He said to them, as a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand. For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give 
will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Sort of seems unfair a little bit. So we start with a lamp being brought in. The lamp is brought in from the outside. The lamp is not already on the inside, nor is the lamp lit on the inside, but it's brought in from the outside, already lit. The Word of God, the light of the world, existed before time began. So the lamp is being brought in, and this lamp being brought in to a dark place will light things up and allow us to see things that might not easily be seen. Now, of course, I was just talking about hearing, and now we're talking about light and seeing. Proverbs, I mean, sorry, uh, Psalms 119 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So Jesus goes from that lamp and seeing right back to hearing. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Then he says, pay attention to what you hear. Now, right here is quite a temptation to use this verse to attempt to motivate or guilt people to go out and preach or witness to everyone. And you've probably heard those kind of sermons like that before. It's a great chance to tell you, go out and shine your light, go do better, and you've got to do better and keep going because you're no good. (laughs) You've got to go do this. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think that's what the teaching is here. I think he's talking about the word coming from the outside of us to the inside into our heart through faith. The word will show us things about God that have been hidden from us. The word will also show us stuff about ourselves that we didn't know before so that we can be healed. And then he says, the measure you give will be the measure you get and still more will be given to you. The theologian John Gill says this was a very common proverb among the Jews, is used on various occasions. I think our contemporary saying would be, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. What do the bodybuilders say? No pain, no gain, those kind of things. I remember in my doctoral program, and I was struggling with the level of reading we had to do. Not the amount. I love to read. The things were being assigned to read. The level of sophistication was quite high. Most of the things we read are actually around the 8th grade level. This is around the 18th grade level, you know. I'd read like the same page over and over and over. and No idea what he's talking about. And so I was getting concerned I might not make it. So I approached one of the professors who I liked, and I shared my concern. I, I think I was hoping for some kind of reprieve. Maybe I could read these other people. But instead, he said, you'll find the more you read, the more you can read. Then he turned around and walked away. And I'm like, okay, thanks. (laughs) But you know, he was right. The more I read, the more I could read. And I started understanding things that otherwise had been hidden from me. Especially in books on philosophy, which your brain can explode if you read too much of that. So... I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about wealth or things. He's talking about the more you pursue God's word, the more truth, the more gold, the more silver, the more precious stones you'll have, and even more will be given to you. That's the real value. And naturally, you'll tend. Naturally, you will tend to want to share it with others. 
See, I'm, I'm trying to switch away from goading you into sharing the gospel. It's going to be a natural part of who you are. You know something. I mean, we all do that, right? We know something that somebody else doesn't know. and we want, Guess what I know that you don't know? I was never that person, by the way. In school, I was always the last person to know anything. But you, you want to share what you know with other people. Then he says, to those who do not have, even that will be taken away. Like the earlier parable, I assume Steve shared last week, when the word is sown and the cares of the world distract, even that which was sown is taken away by the world. I think there's a saying there for us today, which would be use it or you lose it. Then Mark moves on to another parable, and this is, this is the one that's only recorded in Mark. For some reason, the other gospel writers didn't pick up on it. He said, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground that would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He doesn't know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, and then the head, then the full head, and the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. Now, this is another one where you first start to read it, you're thinking, he just talked about this sowing of seeds. <laughs> Things is going to be very similar, but there's some key differences here. Jesus wants us to understand about the kingdom of God. There are a number of parables attempting to explain the kingdom of God. So my first thought is, since there's so many parables Jesus told about what the kingdom of God is like, I'm going to conclude it's important to Jesus that we understand what the kingdom of God is like, because it's not this kingdom. Jesus says in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world, but my kingdom is from another place. This kingdom of his is first planted. And then without much help from the one who scattered the seed, it just begins to grow. We don't see what's happening below the surface. We're being changed from the inside out, not the outside in. It's a natural process called sanctification. Of course, the growth process can be helped by water and sun and fertilizer, which we can think of as study and worship, prayer, fellowship. I think that this process can sometimes be a little frustrating because just like the sower, he doesn't see anything growing. And for us, much of the change that happens is a natural process. We don't necessarily feel it or see it but as the kingdom of God grows within us, we experience what I call the new normal. It starts to spread out, and the old self, those things are discarded or thrown off, not by us only, but by the Spirit of God working with us, like the soil interacts with the seed. We're given new wine and a new wineskin, and then suddenly there's this new me, a new normal. It feels like I've always felt this way. I've always thought this way. As a result, over time, we might not feel like we're making any progress. At least that's the feeling I've had. I've known the Lord for a long time, 40 or more years. I don't know if any of you ever had that sense of, am I really making any progress anymore? It's like the first few years, man, stuff was happening, but maybe not the last 37, I don't know. We feel like we're not making any progress because we aren't. God is. And therefore, because God is making progress within us, 
we are making progress, but we just can't see it. Of course, if we withdraw from reading or hearing God's word, if we withdraw from worship or prayer or fellowship, we tend to stall or wither or stagnate. What you have will be taken away. The earth produces of itself. However, if no seed is planted in the earth, the earth can't produce. Once the seed of the word is planted, there's a natural process we have little to do with except to allow it, to welcome it. We can encourage our own growth, however, the word produces of itself. It does not, the, God's word does what it needs or wants to do, not what you want it to do. And what God's word does to us is exactly what we need, whether we like it or not. And then he tells the parable of the mustard seed. He says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable will we use for it? So I want to pause on this verse for a second. It's good to pause on certain verses. If there's any inkling of what that was about, stop on that verse. Read it again and think about it and pray about it. Or sometimes even a word jumps out at you and you want to think and study that for a second. With what can we, Jesus says. He's asking a question. Who's he addressing this question to? Well, he could be addressing it to the audience there. Like someone's going to go, oh, I can tell you. I know the answer. <laughs> no, you don't. You're an idiot. You don't know anything about this. Right? <laughs> is, he, is he thinking out loud to himself? Like, hmm, Let me think of something here. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's doing what he tells us in John 8. I think what we're seeing there, and the reason it's there, I think, is to give us a model about how to relate with and communicate with God. He's talking to his father right there in front of everybody, right in front of everybody. Very natural, very casual, very comfortable. He asked his father, How, what parable would you have for me? I think that's a good model for us to naturally, freely, intimately, casually be in communication with the father. We can because of what Jesus did to us and for us. And then he goes on, it's like a mustard seed which sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds in the world. And yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So the previous parable talked about scattering seed into the ground. Remember, the lampstand is brought in from the outside, so the seed is brought into the ground. From the outside. So we learn about different types of soil or ground in the previous parable. Now we're learning about something else. We don't know much about this seed. We just know seed was scattered. And then Jesus explains it. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds. And I thought about this and what this might be saying. And then for some reason, hoping it was the Lord, he said to me, look at it from the perspective of the ground, your soul. From the point of view of the ground, the seed is so small it's hardly noticeable. It doesn't really take up much room, make a disturbance. The seed's basically saying, don't mind me, I won't take up much space. I'll just squeeze in. Oh, here's a little space here, I can squeeze in here. No worries, no bother. 
Just keep on doing what you've been doing. Keep on being who you've been. I'll just do my thing. I don't really need much. Maybe a little water here and there. You won't even notice it's gone. So the ground becomes comfortable and okay with this little seed and pays no attention to it. Then the little seed starts to grow in the ground, or your soul, notices things, but being used to this little seed, having been so undemanding, it makes a little more room and allows the little seed to spread out a little bit more. And the soul makes some adjustments, even in small ways, starts to allow the seed to become a little more entwined with the ground. In fact, it starts to become even more comfortable as though those tentacles the seed is spreading out seem to have a sort of healing effect on the ground, improving the ground. Sometimes there's discomfort or even pain, which is then replaced by relief and strength. The ground begins to become stronger, more powerful, and it will need to be so in order to support the great mustard tree. The ground is being prepared. The word of God is becoming a part of you, just like those precious stones inlaid into the marble. And there are birds will be nesting. There's some debate or at least various opinions about the reference to birds. This is why sometimes I stay away from theologians because they can get really way out there about stuff that I don't necessarily think is there. But some think the birds are referenced back to the earlier parable and they were stealing the seed, therefore the birds are represent evil. (laughs) Others think it's a reference to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Others think the reference to birds of the air versus the birds of the sky is a reference to angelic beings and the thing goes on. And like I think you guys have overthought this. A lot of the people I work with in therapy are over-analytical about things. They outthink themselves. Mark doesn't record Jesus explaining this parable. The other ones he does. So it's left up to us. Either Mark doesn't include the explanation because he thinks it's obvious or the Lord directed that this one not be explained so it's left up to us to pray through it, to think through it. My thought is... This is simply a further reference to the disproportionate growth of the kingdom of God from a very small beginning. Birds need a place up high to nest for safety of their offspring. Birds don't actually stay in nests. Every year we get a nest built right on our front door behind the wreath. We can, uh, we can look through the glass and watch them grow. But I notice one thing. Once those chicks leave, guess what happens to that nest? They don't stay there. They're still out flying around. So they need safety. So is it possible Jesus is saying that as the kingdom of God grows within us, we might become a support, a safe haven, even a refuge for others. So Jesus told us to pay attention to what we hear. What we see does not become a part of our internal dialogue what we feel does not become a part of internal, our internal conversations we have with ourselves. You all do it, I do it. <laughs> However, what we hear can become a part of our internal conversations. These internal conversations are having, that we are having with ourselves are having a huge impact on shaping our identity, our self-awareness. So I think what we see in these parables can be quite useful to us 
to help improve upon this internal dialogue. When we feel anxious or confused or incompetent or unloved, fearful or alone, we have these truths from this passage to nourish this tiny seed, the kingdom of God growing within us. And here's how simple this can be. I'm going to say a sentence out loud, and I want you to repeat it after me to yourself. That's how you apply God's word into your life. So will you participate with me on this? Sure you will. Thank you. So here's the first one. The word of God has come into my life. Jesus is the word of God and the light of the world. I can now see who I am in Christ. I am also light to the world. The kingdom of God has been planted within me. The kingdom is growing in me. Even though I don't always notice it. The kingdom of God is becoming a natural part of who I am. I am being enabled to bless, to support, and to love others more freely. Amen. Praise God. You are being prepared and strengthened by the kingdom of God for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and the one to whom all power has been given. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reached out to us to plant a seed within us. We pray, Father, that we will be given the wisdom and the strength and the courage to allow that seed to grow within us, even when it makes us uncomfortable. We know that you're strengthening us and preparing us to be used in the building of your kingdom. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.